may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to go back and sit down now because you hurt my feelings there. I'll try that just again. Just a... Okay, okay, all right, all right, I'm coming. Good morning. Hey, thank you so much. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, we are starting a brand new series, as Pastor Rod said, from the book of Mark. And the title of the series is simply this, Good News. Because the coming of Jesus Christ is the best news in the world. Amen? Amen. All right, let's try it again. The coming of Jesus Christ is the best news in the world. All right, one more time. The coming, like you mean it. The coming of Jesus Christ is the best news in the world. Amen. Amen. All right, all right. So we're going to start at the beginning here in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And the title of the message simply today is Off to a Good Start. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we are thankful for your work. Lord, thank you preeminently for sending Jesus as the greatest news in the world. I pray today our hearts would lean into this truth that we have good news because of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would press this idea deeply down in our hearts, that we wouldn't just go through the motions, that it wouldn't be ritual or rote, but we would be freshly impressed, freshly amazed, freshly awakened to the beauty and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now in human history, there are tons of stories or films or books that start with a memorable beginning. I'm gonna give you a few right now and see how well you do on a quiz right now. Here's the first one, it's easy. Everybody will get this one. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, that is the beginning of Star Wars, not bad. Okay, here's another one. I think most of you will get this one. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. That is from Harry Potter. Yeah, and Sorcerer's Stone, very first book. Here's one you may know for you literature buffs out there. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And maybe the most famous of all actually comes from somewhere obscure. Let's see if anybody knows where this one is from. It was a dark and stormy night. Anybody? I did not know this. It is from A Wrinkle in Time. That is where it originated. A Wrinkle in Time is actually a children's book, but that is where that line is from. Now, what makes a good beginning to a story? What makes a good beginning line or opening salvo is simply it's memorable. You know, you kind of can remember it. It uses language that's interesting or whatever, but also it gives you a foreshadowing of what's to come. All of these stories kind of tell you, these opening lines tell you what's coming in one sense. And I bring this up today because Mark's gospel is exactly the same. Its opening line are memorable, but it also tells us where we are going a little bit. So if you want to look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 1, verse number 1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. So here's what's interesting about this fact just in the opening line. It's this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all kind of brief little biographies of the life of Jesus, right? That's what they are. They're short biographies. But Mark does not call his writing, this is the life of Jesus Christ. He, he doesn't say this is the biopic or a memoir. What does he say? My short little story of the life of Jesus, I want to call it the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, why is that significant? Because the word gospel actually means, you know, good news. So he is essentially saying from the outset, the story of Jesus's life is at its essence, good news. The life of Jesus could be described as an event of good news. And, and, and this is even more significant because here, here's the thing. Mark is the shortest of those four Gospels. In fact, it's, it's almost half as long as Luke and Matthew. It is very short in comparison. And yet, in Mark's Gospel, he uses the word Gospel, good news, approximately the same number of times as all the others combined. Well, what's going on there? Well, then in Mark's heart, the idea is simply this. The story of Jesus is a story of good news. And over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through all of these references in Mark's gospel where the coming of Jesus is called good news and hone in on why that is the case. My point this morning, and maybe the point of the entire series, is simply this. We must see the coming of Jesus as good news. We must see the coming of Jesus as good news. Now, this needs a little bit of a word of clarification. Why? Well, I don't mean the coming of Jesus is like any old good news. Like, there's another piece of pizza in the fridge. Like, that's good news. Like, I'm happy when somebody says, man, there's another piece of pizza in the fridge. That makes my heart rise up. Or, I found your keys. Like, that's good news. Also, any notorious key losers in the house? I mean, there is rejoicing in the mechanic household when we find a set of keys. Or gas prices have dropped down under $3. I mean, anybody, can I get an amen? Does anybody get excited when they see that number drop back down to two? These are all pieces of good news. But that's not what Mark is talking about. The good news that Mark has in mind is more like the war is over. The cancer is gone. The good guys have emerged victorious. Mark is proclaiming that this, in one sense, is the best news in the world. It is cause for unprecedented rejoicing. Why? Because according to the Bible, the good news of Jesus is this. He came to help us when we couldn't help ourselves. Romans chapter 5, verse number 6 puts it this way. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But look at this. But God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of us, because of our sin, 
were cut off and separated from a relationship with God. And what is more, that breach between God and man was so significant, it was so wide that none of us in our own strength had the power or the might to leap across that canyon and reconcile ourselves to God. We were literally helpless and hopeless. No way of self-rescue. But God, in his mercy looked down on the plight of humanity and decided to send his one and only son, the one who could do something about our plight to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died and rise victoriously on our behalf. Jesus strode across the chasm that man could not breach on their own and made a way for God to be reconciled to man. You might have heard the expression at some point, God helps those who help themselves. That is patently false because the message of the Bible is simply this. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And that is why the coming of Jesus is good news. Because Jesus did for you and for I what we could never do on our own. We had neither the strength nor the will to carry out the rescue of ourselves from our sins. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do on our own. And friends, this is good news. When we were sinful, lost, and helpless, God sent Jesus on the ultimate rescue mission. The gospel is good in part because our condition was so bad. The gospel is good because our condition was so bad. So when Mark starts his gospel, when he starts the story of the life of Jesus, he announces this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And everything that follows that is meant to help us to see the sweetness, the preciousness of the message of Jesus. But that raises a question, at least in my mind it does. Why Jesus? You ever thought about that before? Why was Jesus the one who is uniquely qualified to do for us what we couldn't do ourselves? Why not someone else? Why is it the beginning of the gospel of Jesus? Why insert that name into the equation? Why is he the one that had to come and rescue humanity? That's the question I think that Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 answers. Because in this passage, in the opening lines of Mark's gospel, he doesn't deal so much with what Jesus would do. He actually deals primarily with who Jesus is. Before Mark gets into Jesus's activity, he highlights his identity. So what I want to talk about this morning is make three observations, Lord willing, arising from this passage about the identity of Jesus. And hopefully you'll see why these identities, why who Jesus is, is such good news for you and I. Number one, first identity of Jesus that is pointed out in this passage is the Son of God. Look again at verse number one. Mark makes a very direct statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says. The son of God. You see it? Everybody see it in the text? No. Everybody see it in the text? Yes. Okay, very good. All right. It's just a little bit of a slow class this morning. Okay, that's fine. It's fine. It's remedial biblical preaching. All right. 
in the Bible, the title, the Son of God, has different, several different shades of meaning. It, it highlights several different aspects and can be taken in a number of different ways. But what I want to hone in on here this morning is the use of the word, the Son of God, to refer to Jesus as the representation of God's character and presence in the world. Okay, he's a chip off the old block in one sense. Like when you see Jesus, it's like, oh, that's the son of God. Like he looks like the father. Now, in order to see why that is significant, we need to go back to the earliest chapters of the Bible. You remember in the story of creation, in the book of Genesis, God, the Bible says that God created Adam and he made Adam in his own what? Image or likeness is what the Bible says. So Adam at that point in time, was the representative of God in the world. In one sense, it would be appropriate to say that Adam was a son of God, or the son of God, the representation of God's image and character in the world. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, the Bible explicitly refers to Adam in this way. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 3, verse number 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. There it is. But when speaking of Jesus, when the Bible pivots from Adam and begins to talk about Jesus as the son of God, it kind of levels up in one sense. Yes, Adam is truly a son of God, but Jesus' sonness, him being the son of God, is the son of God in a different way. Well, where do you get that? Hebrews chapter 1. Look at what it says very carefully here. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his, what's it say? Son. God has appointed him to be heir of all things and made the universe through him. So this is talking about Jesus. The, what's it say? Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, the sonness of Jesus is in a whole new category than the sonness of Adam. They're both sons of God's, but not exactly in the same way. If I could put it this way, use an analogy. How many of you know what a mimeograph machine is? Anybody know what that thing is? Okay, like four of you. Back before copy machines, okay, like BC, like that long ago, right? There was this machine called a mimeograph. And you would put a piece of paper in there that you wanted to copy. And you had this special paper, it had ink on the back. It was very messy, triplicate. And you would crank it like this. And it made this kind of cool sound, actually. It's kind of mesmerizing. Like a metronome on steroids. And they would come through and you would get copies, now, they weren't very good. I mean, the ink was like always purple, and they were often smeared and smudged. But nevertheless, you could copy documents on the mimeograph that you were like, oh, this is kind of like the original. That's Adam. Y yeah, Adam represented the original in a way, but, but not fully. I mean, there were, you're clearly like, oh, this is a copy, but in one sense, it's, it's not a very great copy. It doesn't touch on all the aspects. Then you get to Jesus. And what does Hebrews say? This is the exact representation. It's the expression of God's character in the world, in one sense, perfectly. 
Adam's sonness was a mimeograph. Jesus's son, sonness is kind of like a, what is it called? A giggle pixel, giga, what is it? Help me, Corbett. Giga, giga. It's in my notes over there, but I can't get there. A giga something image. You know, they have these cameras now. They're like room size. And they take these photos that are like, almost like infinitely clear. So you can go down level, 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 and you almost never get to the bottom. Like it never pixelates. They're so sharp. They're so like the original that you can't in some senses tell the difference. That's Jesus. He is the exact representation of the character of God in the world. He is the son of God in the way that Adam never was. You could say it this way, Adam was a shadow. Jesus is the substance. He is the son of God in its fullest, fullest manifestation. Why does that matter? Here's why. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, as the representative of humanity, God said to him, don't eat the fruit. And what did Adam do? He ate the fruit. And he failed the test. And when he took a bite of that fruit, what did he do? As mankind's representation in the world, he plunged all of his prodigy into sin. And so now every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever been born on this earth is born a sinner. That is, that relationship with God has been breached because of our failure to keep contract with God in one sense. We didn't obey his commands. We broke, we broke our relationship with him when Adam fell in the garden. It is, truly, it is truly accurate to say we all fell. But God was not content to leave us there. And so he sent the son, the son, the perfect representation of God. God himself come in human form. And Jesus didn't fail the test. He didn't eat the fruit, but rather he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose victoriously from the grave so that anyone and everyone who ever trusted in him would not fail the test, but would get the grades that Jesus received instead in their place. Jesus, the son of God came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We all failed. Jesus passed with flying colors. And now he says, here, you take my grade on your behalf and I am the representative of humanity in the world for all those who would ever dare to put their hope in me. And that's good news. We don't have to put our confidence in a representative that failed. Our confidence can be in the representative who succeeded when we couldn't succeed. Listen, Jesus is the upgrade. He is Adam 2.0. He won where we could not do it on ourselves. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God the perfect representation of God in the world who did what only he could do. That's good news. Number two, Jesus is not only referred to as the son of God in this passage, but he is referred to as the Lord. 
As Mark continues his account, he draws our attention to a quotation from the Old Testament. Look at what it says, Mark chapter 1, verse number 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. As the rest of the story in Mark and in the other gospels will make plain, the messenger is none other than who? You know? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger that is being referred to here. And what I want to draw your attention to is what is the job that the messenger is supposed to play? Look at what it says again, verse number three. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the, what's it say? Lord. Huh. John's role as the messenger was to prepare the way for the, one more time, Lord. So Jesus were not like contemporary preachers with a kindred spirit. You know, they weren't just cousins. They weren't just ministry associates. John's role was to prepare the way for Jesus, who this text says is the Lord. And John was clear on this. Mark chapter 1, verse number 7. One who is more powerful than I am coming. That's Jesus. And I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I mean, John understands there is a gap here between himself and Jesus. And here's the thing. John was awesome. John was incredible. In fact, according to the testimony of Jesus himself, there is no one in human history like John. Matthew chapter 11. Truly, this is Jesus speaking. I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. I mean, that is glowing commendation. Nevertheless, John was under no delusion about his relative position compared to Jesus. As great as John was, John recognized that he was nothing compared to the one who would come after him. We're given some details about how John came to this conclusion over in John's gospel, John chapter 1. Here's what the text says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So get the scene in your mind here. Here's John. Part of his role is baptizing people, and he's out doing this ministry. Maybe he's gathered here with a group of his disciples, and he sees Jesus kind of over in the distance. And for his disciples' advantage, he kind of points over to him and he says, Guys, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As you can imagine, John's disciples are kind of standing around and like, what are you talking about, John? What, what's going on here? And then John tells them exactly how he knows who Jesus is. Verse number 30 of John chapter 1. This is the one I told you about. I've already told you guys. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this, pointing to Jesus again, is the son of God. And John's not like theoretical about this. He is all in. Look what happens next. The next day, so here comes Jesus again. John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John and Andrew, two of John's disciples who had followed John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And notice what happens. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. I mean, John is so in on this idea of who Jesus is that he's willing to send his disciples away from him to follow Christ. Something significant is going on here. What was going on in John's head? What would drive him to this conclusion? We'll skip ahead to chapter three and we learn what was going on. John, this wildly popular, you could call him in one sense an influencer of the day, right? He's got this giant following. He's not going to people. People are coming to him. And and some of his followers are, are starting to go after Jesus. So how does John respond when he begins to lose followers? John chapter three, verse number 26. Rabbi, the one you testified about, Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone's going to him. They're kind of expecting John to be upset about this. They're all leaving. And John says in verse number 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. (laughs) So what would drive someone like John, this powerful, influential preacher of the good news, what would drive him to send people away? The answer is this. John found that Christ is incomparably compelling. He just was utterly compelled by Jesus. He saw him for who he was and he couldn't help but leverage his life for his benefit. The message overarching John's life was simply this, he must increase and I must decrease. Why? Because John recognized that Jesus was not just a preacher or a persuasive teacher. He was not just a miracle worker. He was not just a relative who there was a lot of affinity with. Jesus was the Lord. (laughs) Jesus is so utterly compelling that even those who opposed him couldn't resist him in one sense. Mark chapter one, verse number 27. They were all amazed and began to ask each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. John chapter seven, verse number 46. No one ever spoke like this. Matthew chapter nine, verse number 33. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowds were amazed saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So here's my question in light of all this. Do you find Jesus compelling? like this level of compelling that you could write over your life, he must increase, I must decrease. 
Because when John got a clear picture of who Jesus was, he was willing to give it all away. In fact, he did give it all away. He even sacrificed his life for his testimony towards Jesus. And my question for all of us this morning is, do you find Jesus compelling in this way? Are you utterly moved by him? Do you say in your heart, and one says, I cannot live without him. I find him so compelling. And my urgent plea to you is this. If you would say, you know what? If I'm being honest, Ryan, you really couldn't write, he must increase, but I must decrease over my life. Can I, can I make a, just a humble request? Will you look again? Will you look at Jesus again? You know, a few minutes ago, I couldn't find my glasses, and I thought we were going to have a very extemporaneous sermon this morning. Because without these, I, I can't like read my notes. But if I didn't have my glasses, the problem wouldn't be my notes. The problem is my vision. Could that be the case with you? Maybe you said, yeah, I don't, this type of talk about Jesus must increase, I must decrease. I look like, I mean, that sounds well and good, but like, I'm just not there. Maybe the problem's not Jesus. Maybe it's your eyes. Maybe it's your vision. So I would just urge you, urge you, urge you, would you look carefully again at this person who the Bible tells us is the Lord. He's not just a preacher. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a philosopher. He is the Lord himself come to do for humanity what they couldn't do for themselves. But that's not the only thing we see here. So Jesus is the son of God. Yes, he is the Lord. But thirdly, we see in the text that Jesus is the spirit baptizer. I know that's not like the catchiest term in the world, but it's what the passage says. Look at Mark chapter one, verse number eight. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was called John the Baptist because a big part of his ministry was dunking people under the water. But John realized that his ministry of baptism, this symbol, this ceremony that he did was actually meant to point to something beyond that. John knew that mankind's problem was not just a lack of a symbol, but was really lack of a change of heart. Here's why. John recognized this. Ceremonies alone cannot cleanse. Ceremonies alone cannot cleanse. You know, growing up, my dad was a teacher. And uh, so in the summers, he and I had a little painting business that we would go through. And um, one of the things that we sometimes do is paint with oil-based paint. How many of you have had that distinct privilege of painting with oil? It's not a privilege at all. It's terrible sticky, and it doesn't come off very well, right? Like if you've ever gotten oil-based paint on your hands and you do the ceremony of hand washing, you run the water, you use the soap, you rub them all you want, it doesn't matter how long you do that, guess what's not happening? The paint's not coming off. The ceremony, the ritual of washing your hands is not powerful enough in and of itself to take away that stain. You need a solvent that is more powerful. You need something that can cut 
through the oil and remove it. For years, I was like using mineral spirits and gas. You know that vegetable oil does it, by the way. Yes, I know. Free information. It's revolutionary. A drop of vegetable oil takes it away. It's amazing. And your hands don't stink. Well, they smell like French fries, which is good. So here's the idea. A ceremony is only as valuable as the, as the reality it points to. If I could paraphrase John in one sense, he's saying, I baptize you with water. But the one who comes after me, Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And my water baptism is actually supposed to point ahead to his spirit baptism. The water baptism in and of itself doesn't have the power to really do what you need done for you. Because you don't need to just get wet. You need to get transformed. You don't need a bath. You need a heart transplant. You need the baptism of the spirit that only Jesus can bring. You know, when we dunk people in the tank up here, it's awesome and we celebrate. But when they come out, you know what they are? They're just wet. But the reason they go in there is to symbolize a greater reality that is behind the water baptism. Water baptism of John and what we do at our church is meant to point to a greater baptism, the baptism of the Spirit that only Jesus can bring. So you should be asking the question, what does that mean then? What does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit that Jesus brings? Let me look at one passage of Scripture here from Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's what it says. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit. See it right there? Put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The work of the spirit that Ezekiel predicted here would change people on the fundamental level. Did you catch that? He's saying like their hearts get changed. Their spirit, the spirit of God gets put in them and they actually want to obey and follow God. This is incredibly good news. Here's why. Our problem, our problem is not that we need more rules to follow. Honestly, like many of you, it just went around the room and began to ask you, do you know what God requires of you? Do you know what God's commands are? And you listed out just the commands of God that you could think of. We wouldn't be doing very well. The problem is that we don't, the problem is not that we don't know what God requires of us. The problem is, is we lack the desire to do them. We don't have a heart that says, yes, I want to follow God. Yes, I want to obey God. In the words of Mark Twain, he put it like this way, and I can't improve upon it. He said this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me. It's the parts that I do understand. Our problem is not lack of information. Our problem is lack of transformation. And here's why this is good news. The baptism of the Spirit changes your heart. When you trust in Jesus... You put your hope and hope in him. He doesn't just do something for you. He does something to you. You change fundamentally. He takes out your hard heart of stone. 
He puts in a soft heart of flesh. He takes away your self-will and puts in you a will and a desire to follow him and do his bidding. Listen, that's good news. That's good news that God changes us so fundamentally that we actually can follow him. My problem, my problem is not that I, I don't, my problem is I don't want God. And that's your problem too. We love to live as our own kings. I don't just need a ticket to heaven. I need a heart transplant. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus doesn't just change your destiny. He changes your desires. You can't follow the Lord because Jesus died on the cross and rose again to not just take you to heaven one day, but to change fundamentally your character. If you don't want God, if you don't long to obey him, if you lack any strength to follow his commands and live in relationship with him, perhaps it's because you've not truly encountered him. Because the baptism of the Spirit changes people, not just on the outside, the baptism of the Spirit rips out that old stony heart and replaces it with a heart that loves and fears God. It gives you His Spirit within you, which enables you to follow and do His will. And I don't know about you, but that is terribly encouraging to me. I just don't have the strength to follow the Lord on my own. The gospel of Jesus is good news because through his work, it makes us new in all the ways that count. So where does this all leave us? Well, hopefully you're beginning to see that the gospel is good news, that you are treasuring that. But it's all rooted in the character of the Savior. You know, any Mandalorian fans here? Raise your hand, survey. Okay, all right. So you don't have to know the show. I'm going to give you a little background right now. So there's this scene at the end of, I think it's maybe season two of The Mandalorian. I think it really illustrates something powerful. The main characters, they're kind of all in trouble. They think, they think things are all going to go wrong for them. They're surrounded by enemies. And then all of a sudden, you know, the producers, they play the ominous mu music in the background. You know, it sounds like this is going to be bad. They're all kind of holed up and waiting for the next shoe to drop. And then this figure, all dressed in dark clothing, got his hood up. He starts strolling through the halls and heading toward where the good guys are holed up. And you're like, man, this is terrible. This is bad news. You know, there's smoke and they're doing all the effects. And you're like, they, they're about to be doomed because this guy looks like a bad guy. And then the doors open, that's the Star Wars sound, right? And the guy takes his cloak off. It's Luke Skywalker, the ultimate good guy in Star Wars. And all of a sudden the whole mood changes. Why? Because who has arrived? Look, the security of our salvation is rooted in the identity of our savior. The gospel is good news fundamentally because Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus, listen, Jesus can do the things that he does because he is who he is. 
Our hope is not rooted in wishful thinking. It's not rooted in our good behavior. It's not rooted in some failing human leader or prophet. The security of our salvation is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the one who brings the baptism of the Spirit, and he longs to save anyone and everyone who would ever dare to put their hope in him. That's good news, church. It is good news that God sent his son into the world to rescue people like you and I from our sin. We were hopeless, we were helpless, but Jesus Christ is God. And he came and got us. So how do we respond to this? Let me give you three words of application as Ben comes. First one is simply this. See Jesus. See him. What do I mean by that? Would you look carefully at this person? Would you look carefully at Christ? Now I know in a room this size and people that are in a church building, maybe we think, oh, everybody in here must be a Christian. Well, that's certainly not necessarily the case. Being in a church building no more makes you a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. So I want to encourage every one of us in this room, will you look carefully at the Savior? Will you see him freshly? Will you allow your heart to be amazed that God helps those who cannot help themselves? Jesus came and lived the life you should have lived. You had demerit, he had merit. He died the death you should have died. You deserve God's wrath, he deserves God's blessing. And he rose victoriously so the life that is in Jesus could be yours. And right now, right now in this moment, you could experience that heart transformation that we talked about. You don't have to do some ritual. You don't have to go climb a mountain. You don't have to get in the tank. You don't have to drink from a little cup. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I am broken and sinful. And I believe that through your work on the cross and resurrection from the dead, you could save people like me. Help me. As it says in the Bible, simply say this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I encourage you to do that right now. Cry out to the Lord God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and experience the spirit baptism that is available to everyone and anyone who would trust in Jesus. Second thing is this, share. Share. This is the best news in the world. It's better than the pizza in the fridge. It's hallelujah. He has won the victory. Death bows the knee to Jesus. Satan cannot raise his arm against him. Sin itself has been vanquished by the work of the Savior. That's the level of good news it is. Shouldn't we share it with others? You know, Pastor Rod and I have been praying and talking. There are so many wonderful things about our church. We love Gospel Hope Church. We love the people God has called us to shepherd. But one thing we are deeply burdened about is that there would be regularly people turning from death to life. And you know how that happens? It's all of us. It's all of us just opening our mouth and speaking of the things that we have seen and heard. The good news of Jesus. It really is the best news in the world. How dare we put it under a bushel? How dare we hide it? 
Let's be people, let's be a group of believers who are committed to not just seeing Jesus ourselves, but proclaiming his great name with anyone and everyone that we can. I'd encourage you right now, maybe get a name in your heart. There's one person in your life that you feel like, man, I need to share the good news of Jesus with. And will you talk to the Lord about that as we worship him in just a moment? Then finally, I wanna invite us to savor Jesus. One of the ways that God has given us to do that is called the Lord's Supper. Now I talked about ceremonies and ceremonies in and of themselves are not meaningful, but ceremonies point to realities. Visible ceremonies point to invisible realities. And the Lord's table is one of those ways where we remember an invisible reality. Jesus Christ died on the cross. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that people like you and I could trust in him and be saved. And that's what we wanna to celebrate today. It is the good news, it's the best news. We don't have to go to hell. We don't have to live a life devoid of meaning and purpose. We can be rescued, we can be made new in every and any way that counts. We need to remember that. And if you've trusted in the work of Jesus, if you've turned away from your sins and put your hope in Christ, we wanna invite you to partake of this with us. But if you haven't, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Man, this is the place, you're in the right place. We'd love to talk to you right now, right here about how you can know the Savior. Talk to somebody right there at your seat. Come seek out Pastor Rod or myself or anybody in here. We would love to talk to you about how you can have a relationship with the Savior. I'm gonna give us just a moment, kind of reflect, to pause and reflect on the good news of Jesus. Maybe think about people in your life that need to know that good news. And then we're gonna take together. If you didn't receive a cup, could you raise your hand and folks can uh, come and get those for you right now. Just leave your hand up. We'll just give you a second to pray and talk to the Lord and they'll be bringing some communion to you in just a minute. I'll come back in just a second. It says this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus. He became human so that he could atone for our sins. We thank you and rejoice over Jesus' sacrifice. In his name we pray, amen. Let's eat together. text goes on to say this, in the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Shed it on behalf of his people. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's drink together. Ceremonies point.
to realities. So let this little ceremony that the Lord has entrusted to his people point us to the best reality in the world. In our place, condemned he stood, and we are saved by trusting in that work. Let's stand on our feet as we continue in worship of the Lord.